Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Tom Gilday, an interventional pulmonologist and section head of bronchology and the Respiratory Institute here at Cleveland Clinic. He's here today to talk to us about pulmonary stents for patients with lung cancer. So welcome, Tom. Thanks for joining us today. Maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about what you do here at Cleveland Clinic. Thanks, Dale. Thanks for having me. Um, Well, I'm an interventional pulmonologist. Uh, An interventional pulmonologist is a relatively new subspecialty of pulmonary critical care medicine. Uh, It requires some extra training. Uh, That specialty actually is... uh, uh, only been around a number of years. Uh, we wrote a board certification, I think, back in 2014, and now it's an extra year of training beyond pulmonary critical care. Uh, I've been doing that for a number of years, and it's, it's specialized training around uh, procedures and special expertise around doing uh, things related to sort of rigid and flexible bronchoscopy and medical uh, plural procedures, uh, really around therapeutic interventions in the plural and uh, airway space for patients with lung disease. Uh, so I'm the, the sort of program director and head of that section, and I uh, oversee the clinical operations of uh, a large group of individuals who work in that section. Uh, and we take care of lots of patients who have uh, basic and advanced bronchoscopy, uh, everything from diagnostic procedures up through major therapeutic interventions. Excellent. So today we're going to talk about pulmonary stents. And maybe uh, we have a, a wide range of people who listen to this podcast, so we can start with basic. What is a stent? Tell us about what a stent is. Sure. So a stent is is really a, a device or a prosthesis uh, that people are probably more familiar with uh, from the cardiac space. So a lot of people are familiar with a cardiac stent. It's a it's a tube like structure that's put in there uh, in a person to try to hold a, a, a vessel open. In, in the case of a cardiac stent, we have a similar device that we put into the airway. It could be put in the trachea or a bronchus. Uh, literally designed to hold open the airway so people can breathe better or to cough out mucus or secretions. Um, It's the same general concept. Uh, And we have lots of different kinds of stents. So the cardiac uh, folks or the vascular people put in stents. We also have stents. uh, They're made of metal or um, uh, plastic uh, silicone stents and and same general concept of of what they're used for. Excellent. So um, when we think about pulmonary stents, what are the most common things that you use stents for? You mentioned things about secretions. and um, is, this, is this mostly for uh, patients who come in with a new diagnosis or complications of their treatments? or What, what, is, the, uh, what is the usual setting that you see patients? So unfortunately, most of the time, these are placed in patients with a symptomatic uh, airflow obstruction. So we call this uh, central airway obstruction. And the most common circumstances, uh, individuals with cancers. Um, And typically that would mean an advanced stage cancer. So as we all know, patients with cancer that is spread to the middle of the chest or the mediastinum that causes compression or obstruction of an airway is typically an advanced stage cancer. When that happens, people feel very short of breath. And there are times when we can uh, intervene to either open up the airway by some a mechanism of sort of burning out the tumor or lasering out the tumor or just cutting out the tumor. Or when we can't do that, um, we can put in these stents to hold open the airway so they can breathe better. So it could be part of initial treatment um, or it could be part of palliative treatment 
if, uh, for example, a surgery or more definitive therapy is not uh, amenable or they're not available to the patient. So I know that you've been working with stents for a number of years. How did, how did you get involved with sort of developing stents? And tell, tell me a little bit about that journey that you've taken to sort of really come up with more custom stents. So generally speaking, putting a stent in someone is, is, gener- is bad. Um, we, we do everything humanly possible to not put stents in. So when you can imagine that uh, you, you have these amazing resources, amazing reflexes that your body has to cough things out. So uh, generally speaking, you're not supposed to have things in your lungs. We, we try to cough everything out. And so uh, when we have to go and put something in your airway to hold it open, your body doesn't like that. And so stents are universally not well tolerated uh, by people. You really have to put them in with only the uh, with only if they're absolutely necessary. So stents are prone to having problems with granulation tissue. So when the stent is sitting there and it can rub against the walls, uh, we can have problems with tissue being uh, formed up at the ends um, because the air goes in and out um, and the mucus has to uh, be coughed out. The stent can sometimes cover up that surface of the airway that's designed to move mucus out, mucus can get stuck in the stent. And so we have to be on medicines to keep that clear. And and that can be a problem over time. Uh, And then you can get infected. The stents can have that mucus get stuck on there. It can get infected. So um, that can be a problem. And of course, if people get treatments or the stent doesn't sit right, it can get coughed loose uh, and, and, and move. And so the vast majority of patients, uh, if the stent is left in long enough, uh, will cause problems. It can have any of those problems, either one individually or multiple. And so uh, a stent is always an option of last resort. And so we spend a lot of time um, and, and effort managing patients with stents for all the complications. And so because of that, I've spent a great number of years learning how to use stents in the best of circumstances, how to use stents only when absolutely necessary, trying to find other techniques to use instead of stents. Uh, And then when I do have to use a stent, we have different kinds of stents uh, to use in special circumstances. And then we've gotten even to the point of learning how to modify the stents uh, to use them to avoid some of the complications. So um, in the case of say silicone stents, uh, silicone stents have been out since the uh, early 1990s. And that's a, a plastic device that we can put in that requires a rigid bronchoscope and a really an operative procedure. Um, when we put those stents in, uh, because they're plastic, I can cut them, I can shape them, I can cut holes in them. And because I can do that, I can really make it uh, almost any configuration of size uh, that I want. But because they only come in tube sizes, I can sometimes take them and sew additional branches on uh, and, and really craft them into what I want them to be. And so for a number of years, we would uh, take stents like that and make uh, exactly what we want to fit in the patients. It's similar to work that's been done here by other folks in the vascular space years ago, uh, and we've sort of modified those ideas uh, for the airway. Uh, and so as patients uh, have been fortunate enough to live longer with folks like you in the oncology world doing amazing things with radiation and chemotherapy, or uh, in cases of patients with non-cancerous disease that can live longer, um, the stents, if you live long enough, will become the problem. And so we worked on processes of using 3D printing to make uh, appropriate size stents and making stents that would fit exactly to the airway. And so that's the projects that we've been working on for a number of years. And so with the uh, 3D modeling, for instance, what, what, what sort of time frame does, uh, is involved? So certainly some of the other implants and things that utilize 3D printing 
it's kind of a, a long process. These sound like patients who are pretty sick and may not have a lot of time for for design. So what, what kind of time frame does that entail? Yeah, so for the most part, uh, patients with cancer, we, we generally use off-the-shelf stents and we stabilize the airways. But again, if they are fortunate enough to live a long time and they need something custom-made, we can make a custom or make a 3D uh, printed or a 3D printing associated or uh, augmented stent. It takes about a week to make one of those. Um, but that requires a, a few steps. So we get a, the patient's CAT scan. We use this CAT scan as the base model. We take that CAT scan and we um, do what's called segmentation. We take the airway component of the CAT scan out and we make a three-dimensional model of the, of the airway. From that three-dimensional model, I can overlay a prescription of what I think that airway stent should look like. And then we take that three-dimensional prescription off into the manufacturing world, they convert that into a, um, a mold. Uh, that mold is then uh, printed, and then we do the pressure inject of the silicone. That whole process takes about a week, um, and that's just today. We, we hope to be able to uh, shorten that time down quite a bit. You know, and in the interest of full disclosure, I'm the inventor of this, and the Cleveland Clinic has a spinoff company, and uh, all that's sort of in the works. And so um, we do have those uh, things in place uh, around that kind of stuff. So right now it takes about a week to get those um, those products off the uh, you know off the ground. And so you know if it's not really used in an emergency, but it's used as a long-term management plan for individuals who who really need stents for long term and who are going to survive long enough to need them. And you mentioned this was uh, this used a, a rigid bronchoscope and is kind of an operative procedure to put these stents in. From a patient perspective, what what does the process look like? What what sort of recovery time? How long is the procedure? What, what does yeah, that look like? Yeah, for the most part, these are outpatient procedures. Um, we do them under general anesthesia, but you can still you know, come in and go home on the same day as long as they're not in the hospital to begin with for some other respiratory problem. So um, it's a general anesthesia procedure. There's no incisions, so we just go through the mouth uh, under general anesthesia with a, a scope down through the open mouth into the airway. A rigid scope is a essentially a hollow tube, um, several millimeters of a, an empty tube, and we ventilate the patient through that tube. Uh, I will then go into the airway and then, um, you know, load up the silicone stents and squish it down into a small tube and then deploy it in the airway and then fix it in position um, using some instruments to sort of rotate it and twist it and get it in its spot. And then once it's in position, that's it. Once it's in, I just back out and take some nice pictures and then there it is. And then within a few minutes, you can wake up. Uh, we take all the tubes out. You're breathing on your own, and you should feel much better. Most people feel uh, much better from a breathing standpoint almost immediately. It's not painful in any way. Again, there's no incisions. Um, and we put uh, let people wake up in the recovery, and we give them some inhalers and medications to go home on to help keep their secretions clean. Um, and then they go home. Uh, and the idea is that we generally see them back in about four to six weeks to go in and check out on a stent, clean it up, look inside, make sure there are no problems, and, and then we just manage it. Uh, the expectation is those stents stay in for about a year, although we do have to go in occasionally to clean up any of the expected complications I described, any mucus clearance or granulation tissue. And there's almost, uh, uh, you know, also, also an opportunity from time to time to change the prescription. If the airway is changing over time or if I need to make some adjustments, I can, I can do that on the fly. So really, it's an outpatient procedure. It's not really painful in any way, just some scratches to the throat. Uh, people basically go home the same day. When we think about uh, the airways that you're you're working with, um, trying to open up those airways. How how far down into the lungs? How small are the airways that you end up putting stents 
um, I guess at some point, probably if you get peripheral enough, you don't really get a lot of benefit. So how, uh, how, how, how large of a airway do you put stent into? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, um, most of the world's literature is basically limited to large central airways. So the trachea and the main bronchus, uh, both right and main bronchus are, are most commonly done. We can also do the, um, the airway between the right upper and the right lower. That's called the bronchus intermedius. Uh, but right now, we do have the ability to get into the low bar airways, both the upper and lower uh, lungs. Dr. Seppi here, my partner, has done some work looking at uh, salvaging lobes, um, getting down to that level of detail. The custom stents, we can go down to six millimeter airways uh, when necessary, but really just lobes. Um, and the you know 3D printing and all that sort of stuff, they're all Y stents, they're all branch stents. So we're really looking at lobes um, as the smallest possible uh, airway that we can salvage, but most things are done at the level of um, individual right or left lung. Uh, that's pretty much the, the major extent of these things. Anything that extends beyond those large airways, either a lobe or a, a main bronchus, um, the chances of recovering the airway are very, very small. The chances of deriving any benefit are very, very small, and the risks go very, very high. Um, so if we start to dig into very, very small airways, we can run into problems with uh, blood vessels and, and, and harming the patient at that point. The, the, they don't have much value beyond that that size. Makes sense. You you previously mentioned that you really tried to do stents only when you need to, and there were some other techniques that were being developed to, to help out. What are some of those other techniques that, that someone might consider instead of a stent? When you're having a discussion with a patient about doing a stent, what other alternatives do you typically offer? So if there is a possibility that we can just sort of clear the tumor out from the airway, you know, just sort of snipping it out or burning it out, that's, that's usually the first option. Clearly, if they're a surgical candidate, if they can be operated upon and have that cancer removed from their body, that would be the best option. So if they are a surgical candidate and they can be cured or at least have a long-term surgical outcome, we would prefer that. Uh, if they're not curable and we can't sort of get it out of the airway, uh, and they're not feeling terribly bad, radiation and chemotherapy as uh, primary therapies to try to keep from instrumenting the airway. Sometimes we can do balloon dilation. Sometimes there are therapies like photodynamic therapy or cryotherapy or a number of other uh, endoluminal um, therapies to try to treat tumor from coming back quickly are, are available to us. There are things on the experimental horizons around microwave therapy and other endoluminal uh, chemotherapy options and, and stuff that are on the horizon, but really it comes down to, to cancer treatment. Uh, if you can get the cancer treatment right, um, we hopefully will never have to use endobronchial prosthetic devices. Makes sense. So when we, uh, we think about um, people who might be listening, thinking about, well, hey, I have a patient that might benefit from a stent at some point, what are the kinds of things that you see that we can do here at the Cleveland Clinic that might not be available locally. So I, I guess the question is how widespread is the ability for patients to get stents and are, you know, what would be an ideal patient you would like to see because you might be able to offer them something maybe in, in addition to what they could get locally. Sure, so anytime that there is tumor um, wrapped around the central airway, um, around the central you know, trachea or somewhere near the main stem bronchi where there seems to be impingement, these are patients that we'd like to know about sooner rather than later um, so that we, there may be an opportunity to treat them. 
Anytime we see that there's collapsed lung atelectasis, we'd like to know about them, recognizing that sometimes the tumor is distal and we can't fix it. But anytime that there's obstruction such that lung is collapsed is a, is a good patient for us to see. Um, there are some uh, ideas that patients who are symptomatic and there's consideration of doing radiation or a therapy in the airway. There's some data that says that um, doing a stent or some sort of therapy in the airway up front may actually improve survival. Um, in those patients. So we're looking for patients who have symptomatic obstruction, radiographic evidence of impingement on the central airways uh, for people who may be candidates for endobronchial therapy in, as an adjunct to additional therapies. That's really who we're looking for uh, as, our, as our primary candidates. Well, knowing that you, uh, you're very, uh, very innovative um, in terms of how you think about things, what, what do you see as the gaps as you see patients? What are the things that you say if only, like what, what's the next step? Is it better materials? Is it better techniques? What, what's gonna drive this field forward and improve uh, our ability to take care of patients? Oh, literally all of the above. Um, so, you know, right now we talk about rigid bronchoscopy that, that was invented in the late 1800s. Um, we're literally talking about, you know, passing in stainless steel tubes to develop these devices. Um, really that's just material science. So, you know, being able to deliver a a uh, piece of silicone uh, into the airway requires that kind of devices. Certainly, there is an opportunity to direct 3D print material that is much more amenable to implantation than what we currently have. Uh, silicone technology, I love. It's easy to work with, but we're using it because it was FDA approved and, and worked the system in the 1990s. Uh, certainly, there's things that we can do in that realm. Uh, the ability to put in uh, implants that can not only uh, provide structural support that may be also able to deliver medication support. You know, we could impregnate these devices with, say, anti-infective material. We can impregnate them with chemotherapeutic drugs. We can impregnate them uh, even with low-dose radiation delivery uh, products if necessary. Uh, all those things are theoretically possible um, just based on material science. Instrumentation, you know, I could build a stent in the airway without having to manufacture it a week in advance. Um, theoretically, there are some ways that even the dentists you know, put these devices in there and then turn on a blue light and, and polymerize things in real time. So when I turn my inventor's brain on, uh, I can imagine pulling all sorts of interesting ways of building things in, in, the, in the body in real time and finding ways of delivering drugs into the airway, finding ways of making new materials work for us in different ways. So uh, the opportunities are endless uh, when it comes to uh, finding new and better ways to make airways work. And of course, you know, if we even get into the really exciting stuff uh, with term regenerative medicine, you know, taking and replacing entire uh, cell lines, uh, replacing mucosa, replacing cartilage, we still have no viable way of replacing the trachea. Uh, tracheal transplant is really um, something on the, you know, science fiction-y almost. Even the, the folks that have attempted it have been very controversial. Uh, so, um, the idea of doing a full tracheal replacement and, and replacing central airways, uh, even after radiation or something, uh, building back some of these structures uh, can be done with regenerative medicine technologies and we can do endoluminally. So um, really uh, so many opportunities, so many things can be done. Uh, and it's just really chipping away at the iceberg uh, uh, way of thinking about these things for me. What's the biggest challenge with the trachea? Why has that been so resistant to to being able to, to be replaced? Well, you know, it's a couple of things. Uh, when you talk about real estate, it's, it's real estate. It's location, location, location. 
Um, and really, the, the trachea is a, is, a, is a tricky thing. So it's in the middle of everything. So it's not really an accessible organ for the most part. And secondly, um, its blood supply is really tricky. So the upper part of the trachea's blood supply is, is limited. It comes from around the uh, thyroid. And then the lower part of the trachea comes off branches of the aorta. And so the trachea is very prone to problems with blood supply. And so if you try to put a trachea or replace a trachea and you can't you know, reattach a blood supply and it's under tension, it just breaks apart. Uh, and because of where it is, it lives in the middle of everything important. Uh, it's just been so notoriously difficult to figure out how to manage it. Uh, and so uh, that, those are the, you know, the critical things. And there are surgeons who make a career out of managing uh, trachea problems. And I'm just happy to work alongside them. You mentioned some of the things that uh, are possibilities to, to move the field forward. Are we doing um, research in any of those areas here at the clinic? Yeah, there are folks doing different things here. Um, mostly we're a clinical machine, but there are some surgeons in the ENT space that are doing some interesting stuff. You know, we are you know, working a lot around uh, cancer diagnostics here, and, and but not so much into the basic science things in, in my field. Um, there are some folks around the country that we you know try to establish collaborations with. Well, that's great. So, Tom, you've provided some great insight in the area here today, and uh, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Dale. That's really interesting stuff you're doing, and I appreciate the opportunity to chat. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.